Open up at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 9, learning that Paul here is giving us a contrast already between the things that are eternal and the things that are temporary. And he has a focused view on eternity. And this message is so timely as we approach the table of communion, as we even approach Christmas this month, because the title of today's message is, Who Do You Live For? Who do you live for? You see, what Paul does here is that from chapter 4 and 5, he's talking about the suffering that he's experiencing through ministry. But in the midst of suffering, amid the suffering, in the middle of that suffering, he has a focused view of eternity. Do you know how you're going through suffering sometimes in life and maybe you get a little discouraged or you're looking one way or another and we lose a little bit of the focus of what God wants to teach us even in the trial, even in the storm. But Paul teaches us that he is so focused at eternity and he understands that the ultimate goal is heaven. The ultimate goal is heaven. That's why in the beginning of this chapter, he says, we are just a tent that one day that tent is going to be now taken down and God's going to give us a glorious and a heavenly body that is fit for eternity. And he's going to give us, he gives us that contrast between the temporary and the eternal. And he says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by the things that we believe, not the things that we can see. And what's the conclusion of that entire matter? Is that we live for Christ alone. That's what Paul is saying. But I want to ask you today, who do you live for? And you know what the motivation for Paul is? Is that he lives for Christ alone because he knows that one day he will be held accountable, both the believer and the unbeliever, of what they did with their faith. Sometimes we think, well, only the unbeliever is going to stand before God and give an account. No, the believer and the unbeliever will both individually stand before the Lord and give an account on what they did with their faith or what they did in rejecting Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And we're going to see three major things in the text that we're going to read today is that, number one, that Paul is living with a goal. What goal are you living with today? Is there a goal that you have in mind? Maybe an aspiration, a dream that you have and you're working towards very hard? Well, Paul is working and living with a goal. Number two, he's living with a fearful responsibility. He's living with a fearful responsibility. And number three, he's living for the glory of God alone. Now, are you living for the glory of God alone? Maybe today you're living with a responsibility, but is it with a fearful responsibility that one day you will stand before God? You see, that's what motivates Paul, knowing that one day I'm going to stand before God, so my goal is going to be to please Him. One day I'm going to stand before God, so I'm going to live for the glory of God alone. And he's not distracted because he has an aim and because he has a focus. He understands that eternity matters more and that what you do today matters in eternity. I want to ask you today, what you're doing today, does it matter for eternity? Or does it just matter for today? Does it have a lasting impact for eternity that, that one day you will stand before God and give an account of those things that you did and they would be pleasing in His sight? Well, let's go to verse 9 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. After talking about eternity and the temporal things of this world and earthly mindset, he says, therefore, with that being said, having said all of that already, 
Having have a focused view of eternity, therefore, now, he lives with a goal. And it says theirs. We make it our aim. We make it our goal. We make it the chief mark. We make it our target. Now, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. What is the goal here for Paul? That whether he is present, whether he is absent, whether he is present in the body and absent from the Lord, or whether he is present with the Lord and he's absent from this earthly body, his aim and his goal is always going to be to please the Lord. No matter what, regardless of where I am, the goal is still the same. Now I want to ask you, regardless of the season that you're in, is the goal still the same? Is that the goal to please the Lord? You see what he's saying here in this verse 9? Therefore we make it our aim. It's not your automatic aim. It's not an aim that you, you suddenly have. It's something that you work towards with the power of the Holy Spirit. We make it our aim to please God, to honor God. That's who we want to please. We don't want to please man. We don't want to do this to please ourselves. We don't want to do this to honor anyone else. We make it our aim to please God. Why does he have that aim? Because he has first an ambition. What is his ambition? His ambition is he has a, a mind for heaven. And with a mind for heaven, he's saying, I want to be with the Lord. And, and wanting to be with him gives me now the ambition to please him. Because I want to be with Him, it gives me the ambition to want to please Him as well. So we make it our aim. This is so amazing for us, and it's interesting for us to even note, to underline, to remember, and to ask ourselves that basic question, does this please Him? Am I living a life that pleases Him? Or is there something in my life that doesn't please Him? Because he lived fully convinced that one day he was going to be with the Lord. And because he lived fully convinced with that, he also lived fully convicted that everything he did, whether absent or present with the Lord, he wanted to please Him. You see these strong convictions that Paul has? He's saying, if this does not please this, then I will not do it. But why is it that he has this standard that he only wants to please God? We're going to find out. In verse 10, this is why he's living with a goal. This is why he has this goal in mind. Verse 10 tells us, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one, underline each one, may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to it through us, Lord, to it, from it today, Lord. God, that there would be, Lord, these truths that we find in your word, God. And that everything that we do would honor you and please you, God, when we have a view of eternity that one day we will stand before you. In Jesus' name we pray, and together we said, Amen. Amen. Do you see how Paul is now saying, I have a goal and my goal is to please him alone? I'm living with a goal, I'm living with an aim, I'm living with a chief mark, and I want to please Him alone. I don't want to live to please myself, to please others, to, to please what the world wants me to do. And I have this high standard that I'm going to do what pleases God only because, verse 10, one day I must appear, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive the things done in the body. Now why does he say this verse? Because what we do today matters in eternity. And one day, each one must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that's so important that we know what this means, the judgment seat of Christ. This means that Paul is living with a view of the judgment seat of Christ. 
Paul is living and he's looking at life through the lens, through eternity, looking at the judgment seat of Christ, knowing one day I'm going to stand and I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, why is the judgment seat of Christ important? Because it says we must appear. It's not an option. It's a divine appointment. It's on the calendar written in the eternity of our hearts that we will appear. No one's going to be exempt from it. No one's going to be excused from it. The believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, the judgment seat of Christ, we know if we study it, it's also known as the Bema seat. And this is specifically for the believer, the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. The word appear... When it says we must appear, it's talking about more than just an appointment, more than just visibly showing up, but it's an appearance as if you make an appearance before the court or in court before the judge and you must appear before the judge in court. Not only that, it also gives similarities as, as if one standing before the judges after the Olympics and you are about to be rewarded for your now performance based off that race and it's so important that we know this because this is different than the great white throne judgment for the unbelievers the bible talks about two judgments one for the believer and one for the unbeliever in revelation chapter 20 the bible says that there's going to be a great white throne judgment and that's going to be for the unbeliever for those that decided to reject jesus christ and they will come before the Father. They will have to give an answer as to why they rejected now Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then there we will, the, the books will be open and the book of life will be open. And if your name is written in the book of life, you will be welcomed into heaven. But if it's not, the Bible says that you will be cast down into outer darkness in hell. That's what the Bible tells us. You see, but this is a different type of judgment. This is the Bema seat. This is the, the judgment seat of Christ that we will have to appear. This is one where, where God, we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to be held accountable for everything that we did. Now just imagine the Lord, we're standing before the Lord, before the Bema seat, before the judgment seat of Christ. And one day he's, we're going to have to give an account as to everything that we did for the Lord. And as we stand before, we're going to have to give an answer not to what we did, but to our motives, to our intentions, to, to that which was behind our actions. And, and our heart will be exposed and revealed before the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us that the things that really governed our lives there before the Lord will not be hidden, but they will be determined. Now we can say we live for the Lord all our lives, but there before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord will now examine, expose our hearts, the intent and the motivation of our hearts. And the Lord will know why you did what you did. Were you really doing it for the glory of God or were you doing it for something else? Because the Bible says that each one must appear. Now let's read verse 10 again because there's so much that we can draw from it. It says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. Now, if you're going to stand before the Lord, He's going to examine you. And He's going to say, I want you to bring your service that you did to me. And we're going to test it in the fire. And whatever lasts in that fire, whatever doesn't get burned, was actually done with the motivation for the glory of God. But, but, and you will be rewarded for that in heaven. 
But think about how much is going to be burned of what we did that was done with the wrong motivation here because the judgment seat of Christ is where our motives will be purified and they will be exposed as to what glorifies God. So do you see why Paul is saying I live with a ple- an aim to, to really please the Lord? Because I know one day my motives are really going to be exposed. That my motives are not going to be hidden. I live with a view knowing that one day I'm going to answer God and He's going to expose and examine and determine what I really live for. And he is going to, He's going to try all my service in the fire to see what really lasts. You see, He was living with such an expectancy, such a reverence, such a fear for God, knowing one day I'm going to stand. But it says here, each one may receive the things done in the body. Now this is amazing because we all know that in heaven we're going to receive some rewards. We're going to receive rewards based off the things that we did for the glory of God. And notice that it says each one. Why is that important? Because each one will individually give an account to God. No one's going to stand with you. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? The day that I stand before the Lord, I'm going to just call my, my husband or my wife, whatever it would be. I'm going to call my family to stand. We're going to stand together. And we together are going to give an answer on how we lived our lives. No, it doesn't work that way. In heaven, no one will stand with you. No one will stand for you. You will not represent anyone else before the judgment seat of Christ. It will be you and God and you will be given an answer to Him. You're not going to stand as a church, as a congregation, with a church leader, with anyone else. It's going to be you and the Lord standing there. And He's going to grab everything that you did and gather it all that you've done in your life for Him. And He's going to try it in the fire. And then He will reward you for the things that you did, whether good or whether bad. See, why is this so important? Because it gives us a a, a reverence in our lives. An expectation, a motivation to live to please the Lord. And it tells us here that we will receive back. Now, verse 10. Each one will receive the things done in the body. Now, what does it mean by that? You will receive equivalent. You will receive back or rewards. You will be compensated there based on what you did. Wasn't this amazing that when the Lord purifies your motives and your intentions, and He says, you know what? Let me compensate you for everything that you did for me on earth. How many of us sometimes want to be compensated for what we do for the Lord here on earth? Right? Right? There was a gentleman that one day we were going to clean the church and, you know, I said, you know what, we're, we're going to clean the church and we can compensate, you know, for everything that we're doing for, for, you know, all the work that's being done. And we're going to work Friday, we're going to work Saturday. We can compensate you here now. We can compensate, you know, we can let the Lord compensate you in heaven. He starts to think about it. He says, you know what, for Friday, compensate me in heaven. For Saturday, compensate me here on earth. <laughs> But think about what we're going to do. We're going to stand before the Lord and you're going to see receive full compensation for everything that you did with a pure heart before Him. Well, this is amazing here. You're going to receive the rewards that, that maybe we weren't living for today, but we live for the awards in heaven. It's going to be an awards ceremony, just you and the Lord. And it's going to say, come on in. I'm, I'm ready for the rewards. Now the rewards are here. The rewards are eternal. Think about that. That's where you're storing up treasures for yourself in heaven. Those treasures that, that can get old. That cannot rust. That, that, that cannot be stolen. What you do today matters in eternity. And he tells us here now in verse 10, receive the things done in the body according to what he has done. Well, you know, it's all about the grace of God. It doesn't, the grace of God covers everything that I've done. No, God 
It's concerned about the things that you do. God is concerned about the things that you do, and God is concerned about how you do them as well. God doesn't want you to just come and serve the Lord out of necessity. He wants you to come to serve the Lord out of desire, out of worship. And He says, you will be rewarded according to the things that you did in the body. According to the things that you did right here on earth. Just imagine showing up to heaven and there's no rewards there ready for you because everything that we did weren't done to glorify the Lord, but we're done to glorify ourselves. Or maybe not even that. We're just saying, well, I just want to be saved and as long as I make it to heaven. Well, that's not going to be the case once you get to heaven. The Lord is concerned about the things that you did as a believer. What you do today matters in eternity. The New Living Translation says, For we must all stand. I love this. We're all going to stand before Christ to be judged. We will receive whatever we deserve for all the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Do you know that? That day you will receive everything that you deserve as you stand before the Lord. I love how the Lord is so just. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For God is not unjust. Maybe you find yourself doing a lot of hard work right here in the body for the Lord. And you think that the Lord is forgetting all that hard work that you're doing. But the Bible promises one thing, that God is not unjust to, to not see your sacrifice, to not see your love, to not see your diligence that you're doing for the Lord. And you're waiting just to be rewarded by Him. You don't even want to be rewarded by man. Paul is so concerned about being rewarded by God that he's saying, my, my aim is just to please Him because I don't care if I please someone else, and if I don't please God, I want to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. Hebrews 6.10 tells us, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. How much of that is labor of love? Is it a labor of love or is it a labor of profiting to self? It's amazing when we live a life where it's filled with the labor of love. We're just doing it because we want to honor the Lord. And Paul here is saying, I long for heaven. My great ambition is to please God. Why? Because I have fear that one day my motives are going to be revealed. That's why it's so important to check our hearts. Because one day our motives will be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, this gets Paul in check. This keeps him in check. This, this serves to him as a guideline for how to live his life. One day I'm going to answer to God and my motives are going to be revealed. How embarrassing it is it, is it going to be before the Lord for Him to reveal before me and I have to give an answer as to why my motives weren't there to please Him. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a couple of chapters before, it tells us, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on a foundation which is gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. It will become and it will be revealed, it will be revealed by fire, and that the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What does it say? What did you build? What foundation did you build on? Did you build on hay and stone, which is something that's so temporary? Or something that's like gold that will be tested and tried in the fire and will last the trial of the fire? If anyone's work, verse 14 says, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet us through the fire. You see, this is so important that we understand. Your works are going to be gathered and they're going to be tried by fire. Will anything last? 
Just imagine that anything that I'm doing today, if I put it and it's tried in the fire one day, is any of this even going to matter? <laughs> Man, that, that really changes our perspective. Anything that I'm doing, if, we, if the Lord tries it in the fire, is any of it even going to last? Is anything going to even be compensated? Because that really determines what you live for. That really determines your aspirations and your goals. Look at the goal that he's living. I want to please the Lord. In 2 John chapter 2, verse 28, John reminds the church and it says, Now little children, with a loving and endearing heart, Paul tells him, Abide in Him that when He appears, stay connected in Him that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at His coming. Are you confident when you stand before God? Are you confident knowing that one day, Lord, you're going to expose and examine and determine my motives? And I'm confident in that. Because my motives were just to please you. What is your motivation? What motivates you to serve the Lord? What motivates you to serve the Lord? What, why is it that you want to please Him? Paul is saying, I want to please the Lord. I know one day I'm going to answer and He's going to look straight into my heart. And He's going to examine. He's going to expose. He's going to try everything that I've done. And it will be determined that day. There will be no hidden agendas. Your heart will come out purified. Now let's continue reading. As he says this in verse 3, according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad, he knows that he's going to live now and face the Lord. So he's saying, I'm going to live faithfully. I'm going to serve him faithfully. I'm going to serve him righteously. Because one day, I want to hear the words, well done. Just imagine that the Lord tries now your works in the fire. And you hear right after, and the Lord said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in into the joy of the Lord. You're going to be fully compensated for all the works that you did because you did them for the glory of God. You did them to please me alone. That was the goal. Not only was that the goal, who's living with the goal, he's also from verse 11 and verse 13, he's living with the responsibility. Can we see and find out what that responsibility is? Knowing that he one day he's going to face the Lord. One day he's going to answer to Him. And verse 11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Does this bring any respect? Any terror? Any fear? Any reverence of the Lord? You see, sometimes we lose that fear, that respect, the terror, the reverence that we have for the Lord. So different things in our lives start to distract us because the fear, the reverence, the awe now of God has been lost, has been missed now. He's saying, knowing the terror of the Lord, I just know that one day I will stand before my Creator, I will meet my Maker, and I'll have to give an answer to Him. Well, knowing that, with that in mind, look what it says in verse 11. We persuade men. And knowing that one day I'm going to stand before God, I want to convince people. I want to stay living with a fearful responsibility. This is a man that is gripped with the responsibility that knowing one day I'm going to stand before God. Every day when we wake up, we have to remind ourselves, one day I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account of today. And no one's going to give that account with me. No one's going to give an account for me. And because of that fearful responsibility, look what he tells us in verse 11. I choose to stay blameless because I fear God, knowing the weight, knowing the impact of this. And I choose to persuade men. I want to convince others. I, I, I am working to convince others, knowing that one day I'll stand before God. 
I'm doing, making every effort. I'm working hard to let others know I'm moving with compassion. I'm moving with urgency for the lost. See, what would happen if the motivation, the core of what we did was one day we're going to stand before God. Would it move you now to persuade other people? What would happen? If you knew one day you're going to have to give an answer to those family members that we have not yet shared Christ to. Maybe those people that we haven't been praying for. All the ministry that's taking place, but is it being done for the purpose and the glory of God? Understand this, we persuade men, we work hard to let others know. Would it change the way you serve if you knew that one day you're going to stand before God? Absolutely. And guess what? Since we are, it should change the way we serve. It should change the way we serve. Because one day I'm going to have to answer to God for the way that I serve. I'm going to be evaluated. And I'm going to be examined by God. Have you ever received an evaluation maybe at work? And maybe your manager or your boss pulls out an evaluation form or sheet. And you're evaluated based off performance. You're evaluated based off what you really did, what really mattered. But just to know that one day we're going to stand before our Lord and Savior, our Heavenly Father. And we will be evaluated. I work hard to persuade men. In verse 11 says, but we are well known to God. God knows our hearts. He knows that we're sincere about this. And I also trust that we are well known in your consciousness. What is he saying? He's defending on himself. He's saying, you know what? I hope that you know by this, that this is our truly our motivation. And we are not like the false apostles, like the false prophets that are going around with the hidden agenda and motivation. God knows our hearts. And we hope and we pray that you also in your conscience knows our true motivation, our true intention. What is, it? What is your intention when it comes to serving the Lord? Now in verse 12, he says this, For we do not commend ourselves again to you. We're not saying this because we are looking to exalt ourselves, that we are genuine, that this is authentic ministry. We're saying this because we really believe it, because we mean it, because we one day will stand before the Lord. And until he goes on and he says, verse 12, But we give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may also have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. We're saying this, because we want to give you an answer for those of the people that are speaking against our ministry, saying that we are false, saying that we have bad intentions, saying that our motivations are not pure. We're giving you a reason to defend this ministry because He really loves them. He's saying, I want to give you an answer so that you know that this is not by appearance, this is by heart. Now, who is He giving an answer to? That you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. In appearance and not in heart. There are a lot of times in that time that false apostles would speak out against Paul and the church would speak out against Paul because he, he didn't look like an apostle. He didn't have the characteristics of the apostles. He had a full-time job. He, he worked. He, he didn't really ever was one of the twelve. But the Lord appeared to him and he had a calling on his life. But they were all basing everything off of appearance and not based off of heart. It is the times that we base things off, we judge, we examine, we evaluate based off appearance, that we are not going to be evaluating based off the heart of God. Because the Lord, we know, we know even in, in Samuel, what did the Lord see? The, the Lord told Samuel, God does not see as man sees. God, uh, man sees as the outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying one day you're going you're gonna to be able to answer to those who judge in appearance and not in heart. Why is he saying this? Because he's saying, my heart is pure. 
My heart is pure. I have a sincere heart. I want to serve people. We're not exalting ourselves. We just want to serve people. Why does he want to serve people for the glory of God? Verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If you think we're crazy, then it's for God. Because we're living with this fearful responsibility. It's for the Lord. Or if you think that we have a sound mind, or if we are of a sound mind, it's for you. It's for the glory of God, and it's for the people of God. Isn't this amazing? That's the whole mission that he has in verse 13. It's for the glory of God. If you think I'm crazy, and if you think I have a sound mind, you think I'm making sense, it's for the people of God. I'm serving for the glory of God, and I'm serving for the people of God. That was his motivation. That was the motivation of the servant, Paul. His motive was to serve for the glory of God and for others. It was never for his own glory. You see what this fearful responsibility does to you? It changes the way you live and it changes the way that you serve. One day I'm going to answer to God for this ministry. One day I'm going to answer to God for the gifts that he gave you. No one's going to answer for them for you. And because of that, he's saying, look in my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm being genuine with you guys. I'm showing that I really love you. Now in verse 14, for the love of God, of Christ, compels us. Now what is he going to teach us from verse 14 to verse 16? That he's living for the glory of God alone. He's living first with a goal. What is the goal? To please the Lord. Because one day he'll stand before God. He's living then with a fearful responsibility. What is the fearful responsibility? To persuade others, to let others know. To, to have a mission mind when it comes to, 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 to going out and reaching people. I, I'll do everything to persuade men for the salvation of others. But then he's also living from verse 14 to verse 16. He's living for the glory of God. And here's the key, alone. You can't say I live for the glory of God some days. And these other days I live for my glory. It doesn't work that way. God's going to say just keep it all the glory. God doesn't want one day of the glory. Did you know that? That God will not take just one day of the glory. He wants all the glory. Even if you give God 99% of the glory and you keep one, you say, Lord, I'm just going to keep 1% of the glory. The Lord said, you know what? I, I, I don't want it. Just keep, the re- just keep the whole thing. Because God will not share His glory with anyone else. And Paul understood that God will not share His glory with anyone. And because he understood that, look what he says in verse 14. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Well, this is amazing. He's telling us the love of Christ compels us. What compels you? What compels you today? What is it that's compelling you? See, the word compels means to constrain. The love of God constrains me. The love of God has power to influence me. The love of of God, the love of Christ, it it, it almost restrains me as well, this word compels. The word compels is so important that we know what it means. It's the love that God has for me. It's the love that I have for God. It compels me. It dominates me. Has influence over me. Has the power over me. It motivates everything that I do. It's almost like the reins on a horse. What do the reins of a horse do? It controls the horse. It keeps him on the right path. It guides him now so he can stay on the right way. Now the love of Christ compels me. It controls me. It moves me. The love of God. The love that I have for my Savior, the love that He has for me is so compelling. It is His love that motivates me, that controls me. It's the love of Him and the love that I have for Him that 
compels me. I want to ask you today, what compels you? What compels you today? Why is it that you do the things that you're doing? What is compelling about that thing that you're chasing? Because Paul is saying, I'm so compelled, I'm constrained. I'm restrained by the love of God. I'm motivated by the love of God. And in verse 14 he says, because we judge thus. Because we have made this, we, we have now made this decision because we have decided, we know this. That if one died, Jesus died for all. That if he died for all, then all died as well. What is he saying with this? If Jesus died, if one died for everyone, if Jesus died for us all, if he was the substitute for us, now we can identify with him in death to self. Do you know that God, Christ, was your substitution? Someone called me recently and says, why did, Christ, why did God have to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins? Why did He have to do that? Why didn't He just save us another way? Because Jesus, God Himself, had to become human so that a perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God can substitute for the penalty of our sins and give us forgiveness. But this is not amazing. It couldn't have been someone that was a sinner Die for another sinner. It doesn't make sense. That <laughs> would be a perfect sacrifice. To be the substitute for our sins. The story goes about a young little boy that was playing at a church. And he, he was playing soccer. And he kicked uh, uh, you know, the ball. And it, it crashed into the window of the church. And the, the, it was broken. The window was broken now. And the, the deacons and the leaders go up to the little kid and his, and his father. And say, you know what? We, we, we forgive you for this. We're not mad at you. We forgive you for this. But guess what? Somebody has to pay for it. <laughs> Somebody has to pay for the window. That little boy was me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Somebody has to pay for it. And isn't this amazing now? That's what the Lord did. The Lord said, you know, I'm going to forgive them, but someone has to pay the price of their sins. And He says, Jesus Christ is going to be that substitute. He's going to pay the judgment of the sins. Jesus was the substitute that paid the judgment for our sins. He was our substitution. He says, one died for all. He was your substitute. He took your place. He took our place. He was our substitute. For what reason? So that now we die to self. We identify with Him in dying to self. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm not living for myself anymore. Who do you live for today? I know that one day I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to give an account. I'm going to give a response to everything that He has done. Therefore, I no longer live for myself. The life that I now live in this flesh, in this body, I live in faith. In the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself for me. He gave Himself for me. So I now give myself for Him. That's what Paul is saying. Have you given yourself for Him? See, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6 to end now, as we continue in worship, it says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. This is important as we go to communion. The old man must be crucified if we're going to take communion. That our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, you have denied the flesh, you have crucified the passions and desires. The only place for your passions, for your desires, for your flesh, for your pride, for your ego, the only place where that belongs is at the cross. When you nail it to the cross, you say, Lord, I've crucified the old man. I can't live my new life the old way anymore. In Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves to sin. You know why the Lord came to die on the cross? Why one died for all? One died for all so that you no longer were a slave to sin. But one died for all also so that you would die to self. So that you can live for the Lord. We're no longer slave to sin. Because the love of Christ compels us. Does the love of Christ compel you today? Does the love of Christ move you to anything? It's been said that love always blooms. Love always blooms. That plant where faith has taken root in the soil of redemption. Are you planted now by faith in that soil of redemption? Because love will bloom that plant. It's the love of Christ that compels us. We thank the Lord that He died for us. So that now we can live for Him. He died for you so that you can live for Him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank You, God. We ask, Lord, right now by the power of Your Spirit, God, that You would, Lord, show us, God. If there is any of us, any of our, us here, Lord, that need to get, make things right with You, Lord. We ask, Lord,